So we're starting a new series today, uh, The Gospel According to Dogs. Now, when I was going, before going into ministry, um, the pastor at the church that I was at, he used an image or a metaphor one time for worship, and it was uh, the relationship between the dog and, and, and the human. And uh, it was a great image for me to think about uh, worship and uh, how we worship. And so we want to spend a few weeks uh, just looking at, at worship. And I found an article that talks a little bit about the canine nature and, and, and tying that in to, to worship. And I just wanted to share with you a few observations uh, that they noted uh, in this article. And it, it talked about um, how a dog's faithfulness can override his or her nature. And for us to think about why, why dogs need us so much that, they, that we can profoundly affect their behavior and their happiness. I mean, dogs care what we want from them because when led properly, they consider us to be more than just simply a, a pack mate. Uh, we provide more than just simply shelter or comfort or food. In, a, in, a, in some real sense, we provide dogs with a sense of meaning with a sense of purpose. Uh, your dog's faith in you becomes its reason for living. I mean, dogs don't simply just love us. They worship us. And they worship us from the, the foot of the bed. Uh, in my dog's case, every night about 8.30, my dog Rhesus will come and, and jump up in the recliner with me and sit on the armchair. And my dog uh, worships me in that moment from the side of the armchair. But you can also see that at the end of a leash. I mean, you can see the adoration in the dog's eyes and their, their longing that they have for you to pet him or her. But what's interesting to me when the article talked about it was what this provokes in us, what, pro what this devotion uh, provokes in us. And it's not arrogant domination. It's a desire to give our dogs the best, the best that we're capable of, our best selves. The worship, this worship satisfies for them, and it's hard for us to understand as humans, but it satisfies for us, for them, because loyalty is, in a dog is absolute. He never questions, he doesn't have crisis of faith, he doesn't simply believe, he, he knows. And what he learns, he learns that he can give up his freedom, but he gains a partner. He doesn't have to make every decision in this life. And once the dog learns to yield, the decision to the human, you know it as well as I do if you are a pet owner that, that it, it, a bond is formed that knows no limit of depth. So why do dogs care what we want? Why do they yield their willpower to us? I was sharing with Lydia last night as we were talking about today and today's message. When I looked at my dog, the, the reality is they do it for the love of human beings. You see... They love us more than they love themselves, right? They love us more than they love themselves. That is worship. Now, so we're going to spend about three weeks looking at worship. And when I say we, I don't just simply mean me talking and, and you raising your hand. I, I mean we in the sense that I'm going to ask Michael to share his voice in this conversation. If you are a member of the choir, you already know this, that Michael gives these little sermonettes 
Uh, and every week at, at choir, he, he does a little preaching. Uh, and I have several people from the choir who come and, and talk to me about Michael's sermonettes and how much they mean to them. And so you're going to get to hear a little bit about um, Michael and Michael's understanding of, of worship. And so we're going to do this together uh, as we share this series. So I want us to start this morning with a, a passage. If you're turning the Old Testament to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 8. Again, that's 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible reads this way. One day, Elijah went to Shunem. A rich woman lived there. She urged him to eat something, so whenever he passed by, he would stop in to eat some food. She said to her husband, look, I know that he is a holy man of God, and he passes by regularly. Let's make a small room on the roof. We'll set up a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp for him there. Then when he comes to us, he can stay there. So one day, Elijah came there, headed to the room on the roof, and lay down. He said to his servant Jehazi, Call this Shunammite woman. Jehazi called her, and she stood before him. Elijah then said to Jehazi, Say to her, Look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can I do for you? Is there anything I can say on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She said, I'm content to live at home with my own people. Elijah asked, So what can be done for her? Jehazi said, well, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is old. Elijah said, call her. So Jehazi called her, and she stood at the door. Elijah said, about this time next year, you will be holding a son in your arms. But she said, no, man of God, sir. Don't lie to your servant. So here we have a, a, a rich woman. She, she obviously understands and respects the anointing of the prophet Elijah. I mean, so much so, she, she invites him in, she feeds him, and, and prepares for him regularly as he comes by. Then she turns to her husband and says, we need, to go and we need to go build a room onto the roof. I mean, it tells us that she's wealthy, but if you put it into the context of her day, this will tell you how wealthy she is and that she literally added a wing onto her house. And she does this in the scripture, she does this with no expectation of any return. So we think about worship over the next few weeks. One of the things that I want you to see in this Shunammite woman is that she created space for the presence of God within her space. She created space for the presence of God within her space. And so when we talk about worship, I want to use that as our working definition. Now, when you came in the service this morning, there was a sheet on your uh, pew and it has some, some notes for you to be able to take. So if you don't you're not normally a note taker. Here's a chance for you to, to write down some notes to be able to take home and think about. Um, the first one is just the definition of worship. So for our working definition, we're going to use worship is creating space for God. Worship is creating space for God. Unfortunately, what we have done is we have reduced worship to simply being about whether the song is slow or fast. We've reduced worship to being about traditional or contemporary. We've reduced worship to being about the piano versus the drums. We've reduced worship to being about 8.30 or 11 o'clock service. We've reduced worship to whether I wear a robe or I don't wear a robe. And that's not what worship is about. See, what happens when we reduce worship is we begin to build up walls 
And we create this idea that worship is just this time block that we, we have. And so from 8.30 to 9.30 or 11 to 12 on Sunday mornings, that's my God time. And then I leave and I go and I have my family time or I have my personal time. And then we uh, go to work or we have work time or we have recreation time. We have all of these different times and we're able to compartmentalize God into a compartment. We're able to put God into a box. Worship is a condition of the heart and how our heart perceives God. And the act of worship, we have to realize the act of worship is intentional. And it's birthed out of a place of hunger. Now, I don't know about you, but I really, truly have never experienced hunger. I've been hungry, but I've never really experienced hunger. But I have seen hunger. Let me share with you, and I may have shared this story before, but let me share with you. Um, I went on a mission trip, uh, mission trip to Andros Island. And on Andros, uh, the, every, every year we would get there, we would uh, cook a hamburger hot dog grill out for the neighborhood kids. We'd go to this little village, and we would cook hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill, and we'd have everybody come over because that was the way they would know that we were in town, that we were on the island, and that we were doing vacation Bible school that week. And so they would come over, and we would, we would do that. And so every time when the, the cookout would get over, then the people on the mission team would take the kids down to this field down the street, and they would play soccer. And so this year, that happened, and we grilled out. They went to play soccer, and I stayed behind at the mission house to get everything ready for worship that night and for the mission projects the next morning. And I was cleaning up and getting everything ready, and I walked out onto the screen porch, and right immediately outside the screen porch was the grill. And standing around the grill was three boys. They were all brothers. They didn't go and play soccer. They stayed and began to root around in the ashes for any scrap of meat that they could get a hold of. You see, they were experiencing hunger. When I walked out that door, I thought, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? And they looked at me, and they had ash all around their face. They were willing to do anything. They were willing to get burned. They were willing to dig around in the ashes. They were willing to eat ashes. They were willing to do anything they could to get just some little piece of burnt meat. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you left your house to come worship today, did you leave with a hunger for God? Did you leave for a hunger you'd be willing to do anything to be able to experience God's presence? I mean, listen to this passage that comes in Psalm and just be honest this morning and decide whether this is, is your attitude in worship. In Psalm 42, it says this, Just like a deer that craves streams of water, my whole being craves you, God. My whole being thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I come and see God's face? Do you crave God? And then in Psalm 63, it says this, God, my God, it's you. I search for you. My whole being thirsts for you. My body desires you in a dry and tired land, no water anywhere. So we see this woman who has made space. She has created space for God because she perceives him to be a man of God. So then the next question is, what do we know about Elijah? Well, we know that the story tells us that Elijah was a protege of Elijah. Now, 
if you go back and read the story, and I would encourage you to do that in, in First and Second Kings, if you go back and read the story, it's much like the call of the disciples. If you know the story of the New Testament, uh, Jesus comes along, he sees the disciples, he calls them, and they drop everything, and they follow Jesus. That's what happens in the story of Elijah and Elijah, that uh, Elijah comes along, sees Elijah, invites him to come and be a part of his ministry, and Elijah leaves his family and follows Elijah to become a disciple, to become a learner uh, of Elijah. And then we also know that along the way, Elijah, uh, Elijah asked Elijah, what can I do for you? And Elijah asked, can I have a double portion of anointing? And we see this play out so that when Elijah is taken up, if you know his story, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, that Elijah is left as the accepted son of the prophet with double power. Double portion of anointing. Now, I tell you all that because now I want you to think back to the Shunammite woman. She can perceive his power. I mean, she invests in his ministry. She supports him. She, she encourages him. She changes things in her life. She can, she can perceive his power, but she has no actual expectation that he will be able to do anything and break through in her own life. I mean, she literally has the power of the living God sitting in her kitchen, living in her house, sleeping under her roof, and she has lost the capacity to receive the very power that she supports and values. She can perceive him, but she doesn't have any expectation that God will actually work. I'll tell you a story. It's a story that I've never told before. And I've never told it before because my wife didn't want it told. But my wife has come to a place. She's leading a retreat this weekend, and she is sharing this part of her story. And she gave me permission to share a part of it with you. Many of you know that Claire's dad passed away a few years ago, but you don't know much of the other part of the story. Uh, her, her dad uh, has been sick for quite a while. Off and on, he'd had heart issues, um, open-heart surgery, bowel replacement, different things. Um, and so about three years ago, he got sick again, and Claire went down to take care of her dad and to take care of her mom. And they got, the doctor came into the hospital and told them that his condition had progressed and probably didn't have but a few months to live. But they encouraged him to go and get a second opinion. So that was the plan. They discharged him. He went home with all intention purposes of going and scheduling an appointment to get a second opinion. The next morning, he got up. Claire got up and fixed coffee like she had been doing with the family, and he got up. He walked in. He said, good morning. And then he pulled out a gun, and he killed himself. And I don't tell you that to shock you. I tell you that because my father-in-law was a great man of God. 
we had a lot of conversations about faith and miracles and things he had seen God do in his life. He perceived God's power. But in, the, in this moment, when he made this horrible decision, my father-in-law lost the ability or the capacity to believe that God could break through, that God could bring healing, that God had the power to do anything in his life. And I don't want a single person in this congregation to simply just perceive God as a God of power. But I want you to perceive God and expect God to work. And so that's why we need to talk about worship. And so what I want to do is I want to ask Michael to come up. And Michael is going to share with you three components of pure, true worship. Michael? I think in a lot of ways we are all like this Shunammite woman, this rich woman. I don't know about you, but my friends come to me and they share their worries or their concerns. It's easy for me to have faith that God will move in their situation. But when the roles reverse and I'm the one in the hot seat, it's not always so easy for me to believe. Sometimes those same scriptures that I prophesied over their situation, I don't always believe for myself. That's a wall that we've put up that is ultimately keeping us from experiencing the presence of God. I think that if we're going to tear down those walls, there are three key components to pure worship. Those are humility, vulnerability, and faith. Again, those components are humility, vulnerability, and faith. So starting with the first, in order to create a space for God, we first have to be humble enough to admit that we need him and that without him, we can do nothing. I have personally experienced moments where I am standing in the presence of the true and living God in all of his splendor and all of his might, all of his majesty. And immediately I am made aware of just how small and how broken and how frail I am. Paul understood this when he said, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Romans 7, 21 through 24. Friends, the number one wall that keeps us out of the presence of God is pride. You know, in a church that spends so much of its efforts and resources in sharing the gospel in the community, a church that goes out of its way to make sure that the hungry and the homeless, the lost and the broken hear about the good news of Jesus, it's actually very easy for us to become prideful. 
I know that sounds funny, but if you're not careful, you'll catch yourself thinking, well, I'm not as hungry as the people that we serve. And I'm not homeless like the people that we serve. So maybe I don't need God like the people that we serve. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. If you are breathing, you're standing in need of God. Because every breath we take is a gift, not a right. You see, it's pride that makes worship about preference. I'll say that one more time. It's pride that makes worship about preference. Well, Michael, what do you mean? Well, maybe not here in this church, but in other churches that I've worked in. I've heard people say things like, oh, I really didn't like that song. I think the choir should wear robes every Sunday. Well, that music was just too loud. Why don't they print bulletins anymore? I can't stand when the preacher wears jeans. Now, I know that may be hard to hear because I'm sure we've all done it at some point, but the gospel is hard. We minimize the power of worship when we make it about what we prefer, what makes us comfortable. You see, we're looking for something to soothe our emotions when God is trying to mature our spirits. Folks, the church is not about our comfort. It's about our development. When I was about five years old, my father was diagnosed with advanced stage colon cancer. Now, you can imagine at five years old, being a child in a home with a parent that is terminally ill, we had a lot of sad days, a lot of hard days, a lot of dark days. And I spent a lot of time in the hospital, in waiting rooms, waiting for my father to go into surgery or to come out of surgery, a lot of rehabilitation. So I learned very early how to have a vivid imagination. My brother and I, no matter where we were, we could turn the room into anywhere we wanted to be. We would sit in the waiting room and move the chairs around, sit in the chairs and jerk our bodies around, pretending that we were riding a roller coaster because that would be much more fun than waiting on daddy to get out of surgery. Pretending became my way of dealing with that hard situation. Well, as I got older, naturally, when things became difficult, my immediate response was to pretend. I would pretend that I wasn't as hurt as I really was, or that the situation didn't affect me as much as it really did. I didn't feel comfortable being honest and vulnerable and and being real with myself or real with other people about just how hurt I really was or just how sad I really was. Well, you fast forward and God eventually calls me to be a worship leader. And here I am on this pedestal leading God's people into his presence Week after week, people come up to me and they say, oh my gosh, when the choir sang this, the Lord spoke to me. Or when you quoted this scripture, I heard the voice of God. Or that was an amazing encounter with the presence of God. 
And here I was being used to lead other people, but I myself was removed from that experience because I was comfortable leading, living up to the title, but I wasn't comfortable being humble, being real, being broken, being honest. I learned that God can't bless who we pretend to be. He can only bless who he created us to be. So my question to you this morning is, where have you allowed pride in your life to keep you out of the presence of God? So what we're going to do this morning is on your cards, you'll notice three different uh, fill in the blanks. I want to give you a moment to just answer the question that Michael posed. I want you to, to think about where have you allowed pride to get in the way of your worship? Where have you made it more about preference than development? And I want to encourage you to actually write it down, name it and claim it. So what I want to do is I just want to give you a moment of silence for you to think about the wall that you have created or you have allowed to creep in and write that down before God. Be humble in this moment before God. Now, as we continue to look at creating space for God, we first must be humble. The second key component is vulnerability. We have to be vulnerable to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, just before Elisha visited the Shunammite woman in chapter 4, verse 8, he visited a widow in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's take a look at that story, and I want you to hear how she responded and then we'll compare the two. It says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go now and sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Notice how although the prophet's instructions were odd, maybe even made the widow uncomfortable, she was vulnerable and open to what he asked her to do. In that moment, she checked her pride, 
in that moment, she didn't mind being embarrassed because she was desperate. All she could think about is, my two sons may become slaves if I don't find a way to pay my husband's debts. In that moment, her need to save her sons, her need to experience a move of God became more important than her own personal feelings about it. Sometimes we get lost in trying to put on for other people. In an effort to make God make sense, sometimes we miss him altogether. After all, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. The true test of vulnerability is, will you allow God to change the plan? Another test of vulnerability is, are you willing to step outside of your comfort zone and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? You see, the Shunammite woman, she wasn't vulnerable. She was actually the exact opposite of vulnerable. She was guarded. First, Elisha asked her, what can I do for you? And she says, oh, nothing. I'm fine. I'm content. Then Elisha prophesied the birth of a son, the very thing she had once believed God for. And her response was, no, man of God. Don't lie to your servant. What would cause her to respond this way? She wasn't open. She wasn't vulnerable. I remember, I guess it's been about a year now, when I first was hired here to serve in this capacity. It wasn't long before people started to come to me and ask me questions. Everyone was trying to figure out where I stood on what I like to call the great debate. There is this great debate here at our church between traditional and modern worship. So I'm the new guy, and everybody wants to know where does he stand on the subject? Is he a traditional guy? Is he a modern guy? Well, I heard that he was here to do away with the traditional service. He's young. He probably only likes modern worship. So everybody wanted to know. Now, yes, I'm young, and if I'm honest, I do enjoy the modern worship experience. But I also happen to believe that God can move in the traditional worship experience just the same. You see, tradition in and of itself is the process of passing heritage from one generation to the next. So with that in mind, I believe in tradition wholeheartedly. I pray that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will long for the presence of God the way that I do. Now, do I care if they're singing Amazing Grace or How Great Is Our God? No, I don't. Whatever it takes to get them in his glory, I want them to do that. I don't have a problem with tradition. What I do have a problem with is doing the same thing the same way, over and over again, just because that's the way we've always done it. You see, when we do that, we limit God's ability to move. We put God 
in a box. And the reality is, is that the 11 o'clock modern worship experience can be just as traditional as the 830. If we're not careful, we find ourselves doing the same thing the same way just because that's the way it's always done. So where do I stand on this great debate? It doesn't matter to me. I'm not concerned with how we get to God. I just want to make sure we get there. If God wants to move through the Apostles' Creed, I'm all for it. If we're going to declare it, let's declare it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And not just go through the motions. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If we're going to have a modern worship experience, let's be open and vulnerable to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let's change it up and be willing to flow as God leads. My question to you folks is, are you vulnerable enough to let God change the plan? I know you feel like we should go right, but if God says go left, are you willing? Just like we did in the first uh, instance, I want to encourage you to, to take out your cards and write down and to think this morning, uh, where, where do you struggle with vulnerability? Where are you resistant to God changing your path? Uh, open yourself up to allow the Holy Spirit to, to work in you this morning uh, to show you that wall that you may have created. And I just want to give you another, just a moment of silence for you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Lastly, in order to create space for God, we must have faith. We as Christians, as believers, have a responsibility to believe that God is who the Bible says he is. We have to believe that God can do what the Bible says he can do. You see, this rich woman had obviously given up her hope and belief in the idea of having a child. She had reached such a level of frustration and disappointment with God that she no longer wanted to discuss it. She put it away and tried to convince herself that she didn't want it. Saying things like, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be, or maybe I don't need a child. It's probably better off this way. And then list all the problems that would come if she actually had a child. How many of us have found ourselves talking ourselves out of believing in the miraculous power of God? It's scary to hope. It's scary to believe. It's scary to have faith in situations that seem impossible. The beautiful thing about corporate worship is that in moments where my faith is wavering, 
I'm able to stand alongside my brothers and sisters and lean on their faith. You see, my circumstance may say that I'm diagnosed with cancer. But in that moment, it's my responsibility to call on Jehovah Rapha, the healer. I create space for Jehovah Rapha. And as I exalt the healer, he shows up and brings healing into my situation. My circumstance may say that I have bills I can't afford to pay. Well, in that moment, I create space for Jehovah Jireh, the provider. And as I exalt the provider over my emotions, over my fears, he shows up in my situation. And he brings provision. That's what corporate worship is all about. It's about declaring in the atmosphere who we believe God to be. We stand in faith in the face of every problem, every obstacle, and we make a declaration that God is who the Bible says he is. So I know that Debbie has been healed. So I want to be in church so I can stand next to Debbie and she can declare healing over my life because she's seen God as a healer. I know that God has saved Dwayne's marriage, so I want to come to church and stand next to Dwayne so that he can declare over my marriage the same blessing that God did in his. See, the trick of the enemy is to try to keep us quiet, keep us guarded, keep us separated. Because he knows that if we ever tap into the power of our declaration, to the power of our faith, he'll lose every time. I don't know about you, but he can't shut me up. The more things he throws at me, the louder I'm going to get. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me shall be condemned. I choose to believe what God says about me. I choose to declare the word of God over my situation. That's corporate worship. And when you get a body of believers all declaring on one accord who God is, we find ourselves in that Eden experience. The Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. So my last question to you where has your faith wavered? Where did you start to talk yourself out of the miraculous power of God? So just like before, I'm going to invite you to pull out your card. I want to give you a moment of silence to stop and think about answering the question Michael poses. Think of it this way. In the Shunammite story, in the story of the Shunammite woman, Elijah comes to her and says, what can I do? And she says, I'm content. So think about yourself. When I walk up to you, 
before church and I say, how are things going? And you say, fine. But really in your head, you're worried about this. You're worried about what the doctor's going to say this week. Or you're worried about a surgery that's coming up. Or you're worried about uh, what is that thing that's really going through your mind. Write that down on your paper. Let me give you just a moment. Not to rush it. But to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. Just like Michael said, the reality is all of us are much like the Shunammite woman. We're supportive, maybe even generous. We believe, but we're also guarded. We build up walls, walls that we've created around our hearts, walls of doubt, walls of fear, Walls of sin, walls of grief, walls of frustration, walls of control. My prayer is that all of us are able to create that space for God. So that we can get back to that garden experience where we trust God with everything. Let me remind you. Go back and read that story. And... We read 1 Kings chapter 4. Go back and read a couple of verses later. Because he prophesied to her in verse 16 that in a year you will have a son. But you know what happens two verses later? The scripture says that about the same time next year, she gave birth to a son. You see, we have to realize that God is a God of power. God is not just a God of grace and not just a God of love and not just a God of mercy, but God is a God of power. And we as the people of God have got to begin to live into that power. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful. Thankful for this day where we are come together and truly begin to to learn to worship you. And I pray, God, for each and every one of us who have created walls, help us begin to let those walls be tore down so that we can be more concerned about just simply being in your presence and experiencing you than we can be worried about anything else. Help us to be filled with faith so that we are able to humbly come before you, to be vulnerable and allow you to direct our path. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.